It says the new life in Christ on it. A little warm in here today. I'm going to take my jacket off. Once again, we're in the Gospel of John, near the end of chapter 2. It's not that bad. It's going to be better than that. Turn to John chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll read all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your word before us this morning. And I pray that you would open our ears, that we might hear it, that we might Listen carefully that your word might go deep into our lives. Father, help us to concentrate and to focus now on what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, I have a big dog at home. And she's a 90-pound yellow lab. And her name is Cincinnati. But we usually call her Cindy. No offense intended to the Cindy's in the room. 
And lately, my dog Cindy and I haven't been getting along. The problem is not her personality. A sweeter mutt you will not find. She sees every person with food as a friend, though you might want to be careful if you don't have any food. And and to her, every day is a holiday. And I really don't have any problems with Cindy's attitude. I have a problem with some of her bad habits. Eating scraps out of the trash, licking the dirty plates as we're trying to put them in the dishwasher, stealing toys from our other dog, Traveler, eating Traveler's food when he's not looking, pushing Traveler out of the way when he's in the way. And she's shameful. She rolls in the grass, chews on her paw, does her business right under the swing set, and I'm embarrassed to admit, whenever she sees food, she drools all over the place. Now, what kind of behavior is that? I mean, she behaves like a dog. And you're right, you are so right. Cindy's problem is not a Cindy problem. Cindy has a dog problem. It's a dog's nature to do such things. And it's her nature that I wish to change, not just her behavior. Dog school can change her behavior, not particularly well, but dog school did make a difference. We'll just say Cindy didn't graduate magna cum laude. (laughs) But I want to go deeper with her. I want to change her nature. And here's my idea. A me to her transformation. I'm going to do some gardening in Cindy's life. I'm going to plant in her a small kernel of human character. And as this plant goes, uh, this kernel will grow and she'll change. More of a human nature would slowly develop and her dog nature would start to diminish. And then we would witness over time a change, uh, not just in her habits, but a change in her nature. In time, Cindy would be less like Cindy and more like me, sharing my disgust for the bad habits of trash snacking, uh, dish licking, and drooling at the sight of food. Although, truth be told, I've done everything that Cindy does, uh, except for that business with the swing set. But Cindy will be different. She'd have a new nature. Joanne might even let her eat at the table. And you're all looking at me like I'm nuts. But your problem is not with me. And your problem is not with Cindy. Your problem is with God. After all, this is his idea. Because what I want to do with Cindy, God does with us. He changes our nature from the inside out. Listen to what he says, Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God doesn't send us to obedience school to learn new habits. He sends us to the medical center to get a new heart. Forget training. God 
does transplants. And in today's passage, there is a man named Nicodemus who thinks he's going to visit a teacher from the obedience school and instead finds himself talking to a physician from the medical center. So let's see where that takes us. We start with the person of Nicodemus. The person of Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of the intellectual guardians of the Old Testament law, who believed in the legalistic carrying out of rules and rituals. And Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which had political and religious jurisdiction over all aspects of Jewish life. And Nicodemus was Israel's teacher. It's clear he's considered one of Israel's preeminent scholars who's given great honor and whose opinion was considered to be authoritative. Nicodemus is at the top of the ladder. He was rich, respected, and religious. He was John D. Rockefeller, John F. Kennedy, Alfred Einstein, and Billy Graham rolled into one. He had the perfect resume. If entering heaven could be bought by one's uh, good deeds, Nicodemus would have change left over. So it's a very interesting man that we see here with the Lord Jesus. But before we get into his visit with Jesus, there's one other small but very important passage we need to pick up on because it sets the stage for John 3. And it serves as a bridge between the cleansing of the temple, as we saw last week, and the visit of Nicodemus. And that bridge is the nature of man. The nature of man at the end of chapter 2. See, the degree of confidence we place in ourselves for our salvation is also the degree of doubt that we have when our salvation is tested. I think that's true. Whatever we think that we did in our salvation process is susceptible to severe doubt. Our innate belief in ourselves and our own abilities is our own Achilles heel. And over the years, with God's uh, intervention, we've learned to doubt ourselves because we've seen all the mistakes we've made and continue to make even after we know better. Now, the non-Christian secular world still trusts in man's innate goodness. You ask the typical, you know, sort of man-on-the-street interview, you know, how are we going to make our world a better place? And nine times out of ten, they'll point to education. They assume that if these poor, uneducated people were able to receive an education, then they'd stop doing bad things. And notice they almost always assume that they themselves are already good people as they make these comments. And I want to say, you know, wake up, smell the coffee. Some of the best educated folk in the world work in Washington, D.C., and they're about as trustworthy as my sand wedge. (laughs) Which you could surmise is not very trustworthy at all. If you trust in man, you're in a bad position. Look at what Jesus said. This is still at the outset of his ministry years, John 2, starting at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, 
did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's important to see that each and every person, each man, each woman, deserves God's just judgment. And that God could send every person to hell and still be labeled a just and loving God. God is only giving us what we deserve. And he's fair and just to do so. But although man deserves to be sent to hell for his sins, God in his kindness, in his mercy, saves many. And if anyone is trusting in themselves for any part of their salvation, they're on shaky ground. Understanding the depravity of man is critical to more fully understanding the work of Christ. And although God is invisible, it's better to place our trust in him than in ourselves. See, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they were Garden of Eden, they were perfectly able to sin or not to sin. As pre-fall man, they had no sin nature. But since the fall, all mankind is unable not to sin. And therefore, it's impossible for fallen man to choose good, to choose God, unless God has supernaturally intervened to draw man to himself. We can think of it uh, in this way. Man was originally made in the image of God, and after the fall, no aspect of man's being has been unaffected by this sin. Now, that's a long way around of explaining these verses about Jesus. It says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew that we were sinful and that sin affected us in ways that we often don't even realize. And we should understand the connection between the temple passage and these verses. What is within a man? It's visually revealed by the response to Jesus by the Jewish authorities. The temple was to be a place of the worship of God. But when the God of the temple actually walked in the flesh amongst them, they approached him in order to lay hands on him and kill him. After all, what is in man? A heart of idolatry, selfishness, self-centeredness, striving for authority but never a heart of natural submission and worship until the Holy Spirit overthrows uh, the corruption within. This reality of what is in man's corrupted heart leads to the Apostle John's third chapter. Well, we'll find out about the remedy for the corruption of our hearts, the love of God and being born again. And so we see the approach of man, beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the approach of man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. First question I have when I read that is, why did Nicodemus come at night? I mean, there could be a lot of different reasons, and it doesn't specifically say. One of them might have been fear. Fear of what the people would think. After all, he had a reputation to protect. 
could be fear of what would happen to his status as a prominent member of the city if he were seen going to this young preacher and not the other way around. Fear of what Christ might say to him that would be challenging or disturbing and might make him disrupt this carefully constructed life. After all, no one has quite figured out what this carpenter from Nazareth might say or do. And yet the best clue as to why Nicodemus came at night lies in how the Apostle John uses the word night everywhere else in the gospel. In each case, the word is used as a metaphor, a comparison for moral and spiritual darkness. No doubt Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, literal night, but his own night, his own spiritual darkness is far greater than he realized. And I think after watching Jesus' actions and cleansing the temple, Nicodemus realized his heart had been touched by this man. Maybe the buying and the selling in the temple had always bothered him, but uh, like the others, he'd look the other way, however uneasy he might have felt about it. But when Jesus turned over the money changers' tables, he also upended the wooden thinking of one of the most prominent teachers in all Israel. I also think Nicodemus is an example of the type of man John was referring to at the end of chapter 2, which we had just read. People trusted in Jesus because they saw miracles. And yet they're still skeptical of his claims and their faith is still pretty superficial. And although Jesus hadn't entrusted himself to them, for he knew that their faith was in the miracles and not in himself, Nicodemus places himself essentially in that camp as someone who quietly liked what Jesus did, but were still skeptical of what Jesus said. And it's made clear by what he says to Jesus. He he approaches Jesus. He comes respectfully. He uses the honored title rabbi. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And to some degree, he's coming to Jesus on his terms. And yet, how many of us do what Nicodemus did? We come to Jesus on our own terms. We come when we want to, where we want, and for as long as we want to. And our relationship with Christ is made dependent on our own whims and desires. And we only approach Christ on our own terms. And we cover it all up with church language. You know, we say, well, you know, he was baptized after all, or she's been a member here for so many years. And they're they're faithful givers, you know. And she's done fine work with the music or with the children or with the -the fill-in-the-blank group of your choice. And yet all that time, many of these people are empty and needy, spiritually bankrupt, and starving for the word. Oh, yeah, they belong to the church but they know little of the life-changing personal relationship with the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back in history, we can see the story of a young man who tried to do the same thing. One night he was caught out in a violent storm and terrified he vowed to become a monk if God uh, would allow him to live. And he survived the storm and thus had to fulfill his vow. And so he became an, an Augustinian monk. 
But by his own admission, he didn't really want to do that, but felt he had to because of the vow that he took in the middle of that storm. However, he soon became noted for diligently, even obsessively, performing all of the required tasks and rituals. He went to confession daily. He dutifully carried out any punishments he received. But his hard work, his confessions, his punishment never seemed enough. He became anguished and depressed, despite the fact that on the outside he was trying to do everything right. He was convinced he had to earn God's favor, that if he piled up enough spiritual brownie points, he'd be okay. And if he showed God, according to his own terms, that he was a good man, then all would be well. And then one particularly exhausting day, trying all day to keep up, he thought of the verse from Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. And all of a sudden he realized that's it. Live by faith, not by works. As some of you have probably guessed, his name was Martin Luther. And he wrote in his journal at that moment, I felt myself to have been born again and to have entered through open gates into paradise itself. He was a lot like Nicodemus. Uh, Considered himself a righteous man because of his good works. And like Nicodemus, uh, Martin Luther was confronted by the fact that all these good works weren't good enough. There had to be something more. And there was. Which brings us to the teachings of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, starting at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus has this carefully prepared opening statement, and it's just cut short by Jesus. He immediately challenges Nicodemus with this dramatic statement, you must be born again. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no exceptions. No one, no matter how good, can enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Nicodemus must have been stunned. I mean, he was the best kind of person that religion, education, and culture could produce. In spite of all of that, his case was hopeless. See, despite all of the culture, education, and religion, Nicodemus was still a sinful man. And a man in sin is still a man in sin, no matter how good you try to make him. And that's why Jesus told them that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Nicodemus claimed he could see something of who Jesus is in the miracles. And Jesus insists no one can see the saving work of God, or fully understand the miraculous signs unless born again. Jesus is saying this new birth is radically different from the old way of doing things. It's not just a better version of the old law. It's a replacement of the old law. Like the water jars of purification at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where the tasteless water of the law was replaced by the wine of the gospel. The sacrificial system of the temple worship in Jerusalem, 
where the sacrifice of animals was replaced by the sacrifice of Christ. The old ways have passed. The new has come. And yet this is a very difficult teaching to grasp. To be born again was an everyday language. It's probably more everyday language in our culture today than it was back then. The Jewish leader would surely have recognized Jesus' phrases about being born of water and spirit and his comparison of the wind and spirit as vivid references to Ezekiel 36 and 37, the story of the valley of dry bones coming to life. He would have connected it with some sort of requirement for renewal. But the real problem lie in realizing that the one who needed that renewal was none other than he himself. And here Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a respected teacher, a member of the Sanhedrin, that he, Nicodemus, will not enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now from the Greek word for born, genethe, we get our English word regenerated. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus. That the only requirement to enter the kingdom of God is for the individual to be regenerated. Furthermore, an individual can only be regenerated by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus is teaching us in these verses that the way into the kingdom is by way of divine action exclusively. We enter only on the basis of what the Holy Spirit has done in us not on any action of our own. Only as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and leads us to repentance and shows us our need for Christ and gives us the faith to believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, are we able to find the free gift of God's grace, which is salvation and new life in Christ. And then he remakes us so thoroughly, the process can be described as being born all over again, a spiritual rebirth. Because God doesn't just reform us. He doesn't just get rid of a few bad habits. But he transforms us from the inside out. You know, I look around at the church today. There are many people, there are a lot of people who claim to be born again, who know nothing of repentance. This means, according to our Lord's definition, there are tons of people who claim to be born again, but who really aren't. The scriptures teach us there is no rebirth without repentance. And when there's repentance, there's a change of action coupled with a change of mind. It's not simply a new direction or an about face. It's not education. It's not a religious experience. Being born again is not simply asking Jesus into your heart. If that happens without repentance, it will not bring regeneration and new life. In fact, if you're not regenerated, you can't even do that. Regeneration precedes faith. And being born again is a radical change that takes place in a person's life, whereby through repentance and the work of the Spirit, he's given a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And this process is impossible and impossible to understand if the Holy Spirit isn't working in your life. And that's why Jesus talks about the wind and the spirit in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And here Jesus is using a play on words. In both Hebrew and Greek, wind and spirit are the same word. And he's using this play on words to make a point. Although wind and spirit are two words in English, in Greek they come from the same word, pneuma. We get the English word pneumatic, an air-powered drill, or pneumonia, disease of the lungs, from this Greek word. And depending on the context, pneumonia can mean breath, wind, or spirit. In this case, the same Greek word has two meanings in the same verse. Perhaps as Jesus and Nicodemus were talking, they heard the wind moaning along the narrow streets. Very possibly it it stirred the leaves that overhung the window and came breathing in on them. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the wind, although very familiar, is still mysterious, can't be controlled. Though you don't know where it came from or where it's going, when you come in contact with the wind blowing on your face, you know it's there. You can feel its effects. Likewise with the Holy Spirit. You don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do. You can't control what the Holy Spirit is going to do. When you come in contact with the Spirit, as he sets about changing your life, you know he's there. You can feel his effects. You can witness lives that have been changed. However, some people fail to discern the Spirit. They fail to understand other people who've had their lives changed by the Spirit. The unspiritual person may come in contact with a Spirit-filled person, and he can't understand him. And at the moment, that's the problem that Nicodemus is struggling with. He wants to understand, but he doesn't. So we move from the teachings of Jesus to the demands of Jesus, the demand of Jesus. We see in verse 9, Nicodemus still reeling from what Jesus told him, and he's grasping for understanding. He says, how can these things be? Now, I'm sure that Nicodemus has been teaching others for years what the conditions were for entering the kingdom of God. Conditions cast in terms of obedience to God's command and devotion to God's law. And here he's faced with a condition he's never heard of before. The absolute need for a spiritual rebirth. And Jesus doesn't let up on this well-known teacher. He says in verse 11, but you did not receive our testimony. See, the bottom line is that Nicodemus' problem was not a failure to understand Jesus' words, but much more importantly, a failure to believe Jesus' words. It's the bottom line for us as well. See, it's not enough to hear and understand what Jesus is saying. You must accept it as truth and believe in him as the only way. As Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it's not enough to know the teachings of Jesus. It's not enough to know the demands of Jesus because the issue isn't what you know. The issue is the redemption of man. The redemption of man, verse 14. At the end of our passage, Christ refers to an incident in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where God had sent a plague of snakes 
upon the Israelites to punish them for their persistent murmuring against God. Now, last January, I preached on that passage. Some of you uh, might remember what was fondly called the snake sermon. Remember the situation. People have sinned against God. They were grumbling and murmuring. And God sent deadly snakes and they were bitten by these snakes and they were dying. And so Moses prayed for the people and God responded. Numbers 21 verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Notice that the bronze serpent was lifted up for those who had been bitten by the snakes. God sent the snakes because the people had sinned. And God put up the bronze snake because the people who had sinned needed to be saved. It was sin that put the bronze snake on the pole. And the bronze snake was lifted up for those who had been bitten And everyone who looked at the serpent on the pole would live. Now, there was no time limit set in that passage for the cure. Some uh, may have looked at the bronze snake as soon as they felt the sting of the bite. Some may have looked at the bronze snake as they saw their arms and legs begin to swell. Some may have waited until they're about to lose their minds before they looked. But the fact is that whenever it was that they looked, they were given life. And some may have thought the whole thing foolishness to look at that bronze snake on the pole. Why doesn't God just take the snakes away? Why doesn't God just heal us outright? This whole snake on the pole thing is stupid. And they died. Centuries later, that healing look at Moses' bronze snake became the subject of Jesus' illustration of faith. For Nicodemus. And in their conversation, Jesus brings that up. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Like the snake, Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, bearing the curse for our sin. Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree. And like those who simply looked at the bronze uh, serpent and lived, anyone who looks to Christ... And as John 3 says, believes in him may have eternal life. What an amazing cure for the deadly sting of sin. Sin is killing us. But God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin and put him on a pole. And throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God is pleading for us to look to Jesus. And when we look to Christ on the cross... We shall be saved. Placing our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross provides salvation for our souls and forgiveness for our sins. 
The story back in Numbers 21 is not so much about sand and snakes and poles as it is about sinners in need of a savior, people who need to be healed of sin, people like us. And now Jesus is challenging Nicodemus and you and me as well to turn to him for new birth in much the same way the Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for new life. And according to John 19, which we're not going to get to for months, it appears that Nicodemus, upon seeing Christ on the cross, did in fact turn to him. Nicodemus had spent his whole life studying and teaching the word, but now he'd come face to face with the word in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus told them, you must be born again, pressing home to Nicodemus his need. And then he said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, pointing Nicodemus to the remedy. And Nicodemus, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by looking to him in faith, received salvation. See, the Lord's challenge to Nicodemus is straightforward and clear. And it will be the challenge he makes all through the gospel. These people thought salvation was within their grasp. It was a matter of doing what was required. The Jewish theologians of that time debated precisely what was required. But they all thought of salvation in terms of doing. And Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He spent his life teaching others what the law required. To have a part in the kingdom of God when it finally appeared, Nicodemus had taught lots and multitudes of people this. You have to keep the commandments. And he taught them in great detail precisely what was required by each of the commandments. Do those things and you'll live. And that had been his message for years. And not to put too fine a point on it, it's been the message of most religious teachers ever since, including a very large number of those people who call themselves Christians. Do this stuff. And now here's Jesus, another rabbi, a rabbi whose credentials seem to have been sent down from heaven, performing miraculous signs that take your breath away. And he's saying entering the kingdom of God requires a new birth, a completely new beginning, and that this beginning didn't depend on our power to bring it about. Only the Spirit of God could bring it to pass. And this stood Nicodemus' entire theology of salvation up on its head. He had always talked of what men and women should do. And Jesus talked of what had to be done for them and in them by God himself. Nicodemus' understanding of salvation was that we should all strive to be good. Salvation was about making bad people good. Jesus' understanding is that we needed to become new. Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people live. Now, most of the other worldviews that are in conflict with Christianity, the religions of the East, the whole New Age movement, most of the self-help movement, which is just a uh, blend of psychology and Eastern religion, they all point to finding the answers to life and eternity within yourself, all boiling down to that spirituality of some inner spark. And if we stopped and meditated long enough or if we did this right stuff, depending on whose list you're using, eventually you'll find it. It's in you. 
And Jesus is saying, it's not in you. It has to come from outside of you, from altogether outside of you. That it's the Holy Spirit that brings spiritual illumination. It's not a matter of doing more stuff or trying harder or looking better or keeping more rules or keeping them better than you used to. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and to me and to you. Because we're just the same. We're just the same. When I was in high school, before I was a Christian, I was a works-oriented guy. Now, I wouldn't have put it in those terms then, but that's what it was. I was going to excel at something. Since I knew it wasn't going to be grades, it would have to be something else. And so for me, it was sports. My freshman year in high school, I played five different sports. Soccer, basketball, wrestling, swimming, and baseball. I was one of those short guys who walked around with a chip on his shoulder trying to prove to everyone else I was just as good as they were. I don't think they really cared, but I didn't know that. And then in my sophomore year, we moved to Massachusetts. And I had to go to a new high school, a big high school, and sign up for classes and meet with the guidance counselor. And the first thing he told me was, this is a big school. There's a lot of people here. You can't play five sports here. You better pick one. That was the worst news I'd ever heard. And I immediately came to hate that school and hate that town and begged my parents to move back to New Jersey, but they didn't. But the God of all grace was tracking me down, and by using some of the Christians at that school, I came to receive Christ and believe in his name in March of my sophomore year. And now I was in high school, and I was a Christian, and I was a works-oriented guy. I just changed my focus. Instead of being good at sports, I'll be good at all the Christian stuff. Bring it on. Give me the Christian stuff. I'll go to Bible study. I'll have a quiet time every day. I'll keep a prayer journal. I won't think any bad thoughts or say any bad words or do any bad stuff. And I thought that was actually possible in my own strength. I even got one of those four-color pens. Do you remember those? You know, black, blue, red, and green. They were like big, fat, big four-color pens because... Those, having one of those, obviously marked you out as a real Christian and started underlining things in my new Bible because that's what real Christians did. And I underlined with a vengeance. I underlined everything. And then one morning, we had Bible study, and the leader of the Bible study, who was a really mature guy because he was in college and I was in high school, and he showed up with a highlighter, And so I got a highlighter and I went back and highlighted everything that I had already underlined because that's what real Christians did. And I went through three Bibles in high school because once you highlighted everything and underlined everything, it would all start to smear together and you couldn't read it anymore. So I went out and got another Bible and did it all again. And I was an idiot. I traded one system of righteousness based on my works for another system of righteousness based on my works. The only meaning that grace had for me was something you said before supper so the food didn't kill you. And it took me years, 
years to hear Jesus saying, it's not in you. The work being done in you is not being done by you. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And that work is being done by my spirit because I love you and I died on the cross for your sins. So stop looking to yourself and look to the cross. Look to Jesus. People, that's what's being taught in John 3. There's a reference here to the story of when the people of God are bitten by snakes. And Moses raises that symbolic brass snake so that by looking at it, at that snake, at something outside of themselves, they would be healed. And Jesus is saying, just as they looked at that brass snake, so you must look at something outside of yourselves. There is life for a look at the cross of Christ. Remember, Jesus didn't come to tidy up the old system. He came to change it. He came to change us dramatically. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Even with our four color pens. He wants to transform us. And he makes the way of salvation clear that by believing we might have life in his name. There is life for a look at the cross of Christ. We need to pray. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we all want to look inside and find the answers. We, we, our sinful nature wants to have a role so that our pride can say, I did this. It's all about me. Jesus helped. And Father, we hear, we come to your word, and that is so wrong. That there is no works, big works or little works. It's only by looking to the cross, and we don't want to do that. We want to look to ourselves. So Father, this morning I pray that your spirit would work in us in such a way that we would stop looking to ourselves. We would look to Jesus. That we would look to the cross. Jesus said, come and you will see. We need to see Jesus. So, Father, I pray. I know we'll walk out of here and every one of us will fall right back into trying to figure it all out ourselves. We need your spirit to work within us so that we would look to Jesus every day. Father, please. Do that for us. We are desperate people putting our faith in highlighters and pens. Help us to look to the cross and see Jesus and by believing that we would have life in his name. Do that for us. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. Amen.